How many of you have uh, forsaken the written book, and now you just bring your Bible on uh, your phone? Wow. I didn't say a thing. <laughs> say a thing. You know, Heather, I was, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's, it's, that's great. It's great. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much today for everyone that could be here. And it's such a joy to be with them uh, in your presence. And uh, we love you and we love one another. And it uh, just uh, makes me happy to see everybody out there having something to eat and some refreshment and coffee and hearing the laughter and the joy. Um, that is a great blessing. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to the Word of God, uh, may our fellowship continue in the Word. And would you speak to each and every heart about your great love, your great plan, your great message, Lord, for each and every person on this earth. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we uh, started to look at a very interesting situation between two giant leaders in the early church, Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul. And uh, they had just come back from uh, Jerusalem where they had sat in the first church council and uh, they debated what was essential for a person to be a believer and a follower in Jesus. And they basically said, it's by grace through faith, not by works of righteousness, of keeping the law. It is by the work that Jesus has done for us and to simply put our faith in that finished work. And uh, they took this message back to all the Gentiles, and Gentiles are non-Jews, and they took them back to all of the Gentiles that were getting saved and becoming followers of Jesus, and they said, great news. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the law of Moses but simply by the finished work of Jesus and your faith in Him. And it brought great joy and encouragement to all the church. So the church is being edified, and there's great encouragement going on. And so after some time, uh, it was dropped in their heart that they should go back to the churches that they first went and preached the gospel to on their first missionary journey. And they thought that was a great idea. And it says that Paul, or uh, Barnabas, determined, was determined to take John Mark with him. And Paul insisted that they shouldn't. So one was determined, and the other was insistent. And you know that that is not going to end with a good outcome as far as getting together and agreeing on things. And so... They had a very vehement discussion and disagreement over this young man named John Mark because he had gone on the first missionary journey and he had deserted them and left the work. So Barnabas, being an encourager, wanted to take this young man 
and give them a second chance. And basically recognized that there was a call on his life, that there was ministry in him, that he probably had learnt from his mistake and wanted to continue to encourage this young man to develop into all that God wanted him to be. But Paul was uh, a man that looked at this young guy and he departed from us. He's not trustworthy. I don't want to take him and have the chance of him deserting the work again. And so they basically split. The outcome was is that from this point on, we never see Barnabas again in the Scriptures. It says that he took John Mark and he went on a, uh, another missionary journey with John Mark. And Paul chose Silas. And Silas and Paul went on another route. And so now we have two missionary teams rather than one. Now, the point that I tried to make last week is that besides not really knowing how all of this really worked together, there are some things that we do know. And this is some of the things that we know. Is that in that particular point of time for Barnabas and Paul, it was but a snapshot in everybody's life. It was like a chapter that was being written. It wasn't the whole book was being completed in the 15th chapter of Acts. It wasn't like this snapshot was the end-all and be-all of the photo album and it was finished. It was just simply a snapshot, a chapter in time that God was going to use to build everybody in that equation to be used for even greater things. And my encouragement to the church last week was very simple. Where we are in life right now is the snapshot of life. It's the chapter of life, but it is not the book that's going to be finished. God is writing the book of our life. He is writing in the book of our loved ones. He is writing in everyone that we associate with, but don't judge the book by just one chapter. The chapter is just simply a part of the whole mosaic that God is putting together. And the beautiful thing about God is that he can even take mistakes and failures and he can use them to write beautiful testimonies to his grace. As a matter of fact, if we think about it for a moment, at least if I do, I would say that I've had more failures in my life than I have had successes. I would say that I've had more disappointments and heartaches than I have had with uh, joy bells ringing as I ran over the hills of Hallelujah Range rejoicing in the Lord. But the beautiful thing is, is the things that I have learned from my failures and my suffering are far greater and far deeper than the things that I have ever learned from when things were going well. Amen? And so this is the beautiful thing about life, is that God gives beauty for ashes. He gives the oil of joy for mourning. He can take the things that we feel have no redeemable qualities, and He can redeem them and bring glory to His name through the things that we could not even conceive that it would be possible. But God does those things. And so in this 
chapter that we're going to come to today, we're going to see a lot of unexpected blessings that come to Paul and Silas because of the disagreement that him and Barnabas had. So if you have your phones open or your Bibles, your Bible apps and your Bibles, your iPads, and whatever other you got open, open. I want to look at the next five verses in chapter 16 and see how God was way ahead of Paul and going to add a very special person to this man named Paul and form a beautiful missionary team. And the man that Paul is going to form a relationship with for the rest of his life is a young guy by the name of Timothy. And according to the estimate of William Barclay, his, uh, uh, a, a great uh, Bible commentary, he said the first missionary journey finished about five years before this event that we're about to read. So from the time that Paul has gone on his first missionary journey, come back to Antioch, gone down to Jerusalem to have the council, come back to Antioch and everything. It's been about five years now. And so time has gone by. So between chapter 15 and chapter 16, uh, we see that there's been a time uh, elapse of about, you know, five years. So Paul wanted to see how the work of the Lord was continuing among the churches he first visited about five years before. So it says in verse 1, Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium, And Paul wanted to have him go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased number daily. One of the great things that happened to Paul, one of the blessings that came from Paul and Barnabas parting company was a young man by the name of Timothy. Do you know that some of the greatest blessings that you will ever receive is not things but people? You know, some of the most worthwhile blessings and the most valuable blessings that God gives is not in toys and money and things, but actually in friendship and fellowship and people. Amen? So, no one could have predicted that God was preparing Paul back in Antioch to meet this young man, Timothy, and no one could have predicted that Timothy, while he was in Lystra, was going to be prepared to be one of Paul's most trusted young men in the faith. And yet, here... God is working on both ends. He's working in Paul, and he's working in Timothy. Did they know? No, they didn't know. 
did uh, Paul know that something was going to happen when he was having this disagreement with uh, Barnabas? No, he didn't know at all. But here it was, God was working all things in a way that would just blow their minds. And I would just kind of like to encourage you today. God is working at a depth that is so great and so most of the time undiscernible to us in our lives. But He is working so deeply in our lives at a level that often we can't even discern or even think. And every once in a while, God pulls back the curtains and gives us a glimpse of how wonderfully He was preparing things and doing things. And you go, aha, wow. Well, most of the time, I would say I'm 99% in clueless of what God's doing. And every once in a while, he gives me the 1% vision. And that 1% vision just helps me to realize at what a depth God is working at to do his work. I'm going to say some really profound things to you right now. The first one is God's really smart. He's really smart. He's smarter than you. It's hard to imagine Gary, but he is. God even knows how to hit a golf ball, Gary, though. God is very smart. As a matter of fact, he's omniscient. He's all wise. God is very powerful. There's nothing that God can't do that he wants to do. And sometimes God works at such a level and such a depth that it's hidden from us. But I would like you to take this home today as He is working in you. He is working at such an incredible depth that if He made it so plain and obvious to, it, uh, to us, we might ruin the plan. But He takes us through ways and valleys and mountaintops that basically prepare us for what he wants to do at that exact moment. Sometimes he has to take people through some incredible times of hardship and humbling because he wants to do a great work through that person and he doesn't want that person to be ruined by pride or to be ruined by arrogance or be all puffed up, but that when the person comes to that place where God releases his power and his work through him, that that person has been sufficiently prepared to know God has done it. Not I. God has done it. And it's marvelous in our eyes. I give you the example of Moses. Moses was raised in the court of Pharaoh. Just think about the education that he had, the riches that he had, the opulence, the power. There was nothing that he uh, desired that would be withheld from him. The Bible tells us that he was exercised in his spirit to see that he was a part of God's people, that he wasn't an Egyptian. And so, when he saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew slave, he thought that he would rise up and do something about it, so he killed the Egyptian. Well, it didn't work out well. 
because he ended up being a fugitive for the next 40 years in the wilderness. And when God showed up again and said, no speaky. Moses said, basically, who am I? And God says, man, when I hear those words, you are the guy. Moses needed 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness that God was preparing him to be one of the greatest deliverers that Israel would ever know, and God was going to personally give him a handwritten copy of the law. There was a lot of preparation. When you say, God, here am I, send me, watch what you prized if you end up in a desert somewhere wondering why God isn't answering your prayer. Trust me, he is. He's preparing you. Do you know that the blessings of God are incredibly heady things? Failure, failure reminds us we need Jesus. Lord, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Success, blessing, increase. Oh, Lord, how I don't need thee. Look around at the blessings that I am enjoying. It must be my great skill, my intelligence, my know-how, my oratory ability. Now, none of that. None of that at all. It's all God. I say all of that because even Paul went through many, many hardships and if you read the book of 2 Corinthians, it's almost like Paul's autobiography. He talks about all of the things that he endured for the call of God. And he ends up in chapter 12 saying, hey, I had a vision. I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. All I know is this man went up to the third heaven and I saw and heard things that were... To keep me humble, God gave me a thorn in my side. And I told the Lord, I asked the Lord, remove it three times... And the Lord kept saying, nah, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul ended up writing those great words, that incredible principle, for when I am weak, then I am strong. We don't like to hear that much, but the fact of the matter is, is that is an incredible truth and principle that every servant of the Lord needs to realize. Well, Paul... Yes, I see you. Pastor Dale's looking at you. (laughs) Paul, we're in good company. How could he actually really know what God was going to do through all of this? Timothy lived in Lystra, the city where Paul came to in his first missionary journey. It was actually at the end of his first uh, journey, but Paul was kind of working his way backwards to forwards. It was there that in Lystra, a man who was born a cripple from birth was healed. And the people thought that Paul and Barnabas were Greek gods that had come down in the flesh. And they wanted to offer sacrifices to them. And when Paul and Barnabas found out what they wanted to do, they ran among them, and they could hardly constrain them from offering sacrifices 
as gods. They wanted to call one Zeus and the other Apollo. Then Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and began to stir up dissension and turn the same crowds that wanted to uh, make them gods into a violent mob and they dragged Paul out of the city and they stoned him and they left him for dead. Some think that it might have been there that Paul had this heavenly vision that he, ju- that he talked about in 2 Corinthians 12, being caught up into the third heaven and seeing those things that he would not even talk about, which is kind of interesting because most people who die and go to heaven, the first thing they want to do is write a book and make a movie. But Paul didn't seem to do that. Timothy, no doubt, was a witness to Paul's preaching and his suffering. He would have seen everything that went on because he lived in, in Lystra. And when Paul and Silas arrive for a second time in Lystra, Timothy is already called a disciple. He is the son of a Jewish woman. His father is a Greek, which probably means he was a non-believer. And he was spoken well of by all of the church. He had a good reputation. So Paul took him under his guidance And from here on in, Timothy became a companion and a fellow laborer in the gospel with Paul. Paul, if you read through some of his writings, referred to Timothy as a fellow worker. He also said in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, I have sent Timothy to you who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 16, 10, he said, if Timothy comes... See that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. In Philippians 4.19, he said, uh, or 2, I think, Philippians 2, he says, But I trust in the Lord, Jesus, to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Now listen to this about what he says. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul had such trust in this young man, Timothy, that when he sent him to the Philippians, he said, I have no one like him, because he sincerely cares for you the way that I care for you. And that he does not seek his own agenda or his own profit, but the things that are of Christ Jesus. And the thing that Paul was looking for in his protege, in a disciple, was a man that had the same heart for Christ and for the people of God that he had. And that's what he loved about Timothy. What he loved about Timothy was a young man who loved the Lord so much that his ministry was not based upon selfish gain, ambition, applause, or any other thing. He sincerely cared for the state state of the flock, and he wanted God to be glorified in his people. And Paul said, I can trust that guy. Why can I trust him? Because he has the same heart for God and for his people that I do. Now, I as a pastor, I look for that in young men. When I release young men into the ministry, I'm looking for someone that has the same heart 
for God and the same heart for people that I have. And that when he goes to represent me, he is representing me in heart and spirit and with the same fervency and desire to make sure that he is not promoting his cause, but promoting the cause and the gospel of Christ. Paul called Timothy a true son in the faith. He called him a beloved son. And then in 2 Timothy 1.5, he said, Timothy, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Paul says Timothy had a genuine faith, and that genuine faith, get this, is the same faith which he was absolutely assured and persuaded that lived in his grandmother and his mother. What does that tell you? It means Granny and Mummy took little Timmy and put them on his lap, their lap at home and prepared Timothy's heart to accept Jesus by teaching him the Scriptures and preparing him from infancy to recognize the Messiah when he appeared. And when Paul came preaching Christ, all three of them committed their lives to the Savior. Well, parents, if you want to know what one of your many jobs is as a Christian parent, it's to prepare your children to know the Lord, to prepare your children to be able to recognize when the Spirit is moving in their hearts and be able to encourage them and direct them in the ways of God. The example of Lois and Eunice to teach the children the Word of God is so incredibly plain for us to see in these scriptures. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul warned Timothy about false teachers that he would counter, and he tells them to continue in the things that he's learned because he knows the character of those he learned them from. And he lists three people, himself, his mother, and his grandmother. The truths Timothy was taught from infant from infancy, truth about sin and a need for Savior, and they were able to make him wiser for salvation. We as parents have the same job. We are to prepare our children to know truth from error. And what an incredibly important job it is, and what a, what a job you have, parents, on your hands now with the advent of social media. It's coming in waves As believers, we're to stand firm in the truth that we've learned, and we shouldn't be surprised at all the false teaching and opposition that comes our way. I'd like to know how many today are sitting here because your mom and your dad led you to the Lord. Yeah, lots of people. I know that I have heard again and again how young people remember going to church with their parents and hearing the gospel of Jesus and being convicted in their heart at three, 
four, five years old, and they'd go home and they would ask mom or dad about getting right with God and a, and, and a parent would kneel down with them at bed or someplace in the house and lead their child to faith in Christ. And, pe- and these people are still serving the Lord today because my wife is one of them. Thank God for godly mom and dads. And if you have children, I salute you. I pray for you. And you have such an incredible opportunity and an incredible challenge to raise your kids to know truth from error, to have their hearts soft and prepared for the Lord, to be able to be available to pray with them and talk with them about the things of God. How precious is the work of grandparents and parents in the lives of children. When my kids were seven and five, we moved here to Kelowna from the coast. One of the great blessings that we have always enjoyed about our move here, besides being able to pastor, was having our kids around grandparents and family and to see them be able to be nourished in a family of faith that put Christ at the center It's a great blessing. And if you are a grandparent today or a parent, I just encourage you to pray for your grandkids, to pray for your kids. And remember, it's a chapter. It's a snapshot. The last chapter has not been written. Amen? Now, because Timothy was a Jew and a half Greek, his his father was a Greek, Paul wanted to have him circumcised. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because they had just come from the council, and the council says you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. So what exactly is going on here? Paul strongly resisted circumcision in the case of another young preacher by the name of Titus. Titus was a pure Greek. And because of the uh, principle of, of liberty was at stake, he said to Titus, You don't have to be circumcised. But Timothy was both Jew and Greek, and yet when when they came together, he was uncircumcised. And Paul knew that if he was going to be effective in the work with Jews and with Gentiles, he would have him circumcised, not for salvation, but to make him effective in the work of reaching the Jews. So Timothy voluntarily removed the stumbling block. The decision at the Jerusalem conference was not necessary to be circumcised in order to be saved. It was about the truth of the gospel. But here, we're talking about the fitness of the man to serve, and Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy could be able not only to minister to Greeks, but also to the Jews, and he knew that if he was uncircumcised, that that would be a block. And so he had him circumcised. And so Paul goes on and he says, I love this young man. And Paul gave many instructions to Timothy and advice for how to live his life and to lead a church. He said to Timothy, I want you to be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. This is Paul writing to young Timothy. 
If you'd like to know what the will of God is, young people, and of course any people, but be an example in how you talk, in the way you live, how you love, in faith and in purity. He told Timothy, be devoted to the reading of Scripture, exhorting and teaching, and do not neglect the gift that has been given to you. Paul also counseled Timothy to keep a close watch on himself and said, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He told Timothy, hey, Timothy, I hear you're having some troubles with your stomach. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. It seems that Timothy had a delicate constitution. And from this example, we can learn that it's not always God's will to heal a person miraculously. Sometimes healing comes through more natural means, and sometimes God just takes his children home because Timothy wasn't healed. And then Paul told Timothy something every young disciple should hear. He said, Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. If I were to sit down with any young person today and they ask me, what advice do you have for me? I would say with Paul, as he said to Timothy, do your best for God. Do your very best to present yourself to God. Are you doing your best? Are you giving God half-baked, half-leftovers? Is it like, well, you know, after I do six hours on my phone and another 12 on Call of Duty, I'll get to maybe reading a verse or two. The Bible says to young men and young women, do your best to present yourselves to God. It's said that every person should have a Barnabas example and a Timothy to disciple. Everybody in their life should have a Barnabas, a Paul, and a Timothy. You'd have someone to encourage you, someone to be your example and kick you in the pants, and then you should have someone to disciple so that you can pass it on as you have been learning. That's always been Paul's operating manual, as he said in 1 Timothy 2, 2. He said, that which you have seen and heard on me, pass it on to other faithful men. So, looking back now on Paul and Barnabas' decision not to part company, did they have any idea of what is going to be added on to the Apostle Paul? You know, I get the feeling when I read about Paul, and I, I can't prove it, it's just my opinion, that Paul didn't have a lot of really close, close friends, but if he did, Timothy was at the top of the list. Well, 
Have you ever seen those commercials where it says, and if you order, wait, there's more. And if you order right now, we'll throw in for apps. Well, listen, more than Timothy, there's more. Verse 6, it says, now when they had gone through Figer, what is it? Fergia. Okay. Call them Fergie. And the region of Galatia. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia and tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is a second benefit from the disagreement with Barnabas. Now, all of a sudden, he's got Timothy with him, and now God is changing direction and saying, we want you to go. God says, I want you to go to Macedonia and help over there. Would that have happened if Barnabas and Paul stayed together? We don't know the answer, but it's interesting that because it did happen, there's a now a door for the first time in Europe opening up for the preaching of the gospel. Did you know that God answers prayers three ways? Did you know that? He says yes, and he says no, and sometimes he says wait and grow. And did you know that no is just as much an answer from heaven as yes? God doesn't answer my prayer. Sure he did. He said no. Well, I don't like that. I'm not God. You'll have to take it up with him. It's interesting that Paul sought to go to Asia. Now, Asia is not modern-day Asia, China today. Asia was then a province in modern-day Turkey. So they wanted to go to this province in Turkey to preach the gospel, but they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And then they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So they came to Troas, and when they were there, Paul has a vision in the night. A man of Macedonian, which is northern Greece, said, come on over here, Paul. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And they concluded that all the doors were shut, but this one was opened sovereignly by the Lord, and they said, must be God, saw a vision, let's go. You might want to make note, we, in verse 10. Because this is the first time that Luke introduces himself into the narrative because Luke wrote the book of Acts, and for the first time, he uses that personal pronoun, we, in the narrative, and now we see four of them that are now on the missionary team, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And as we go through the book of uh, Acts now, we will see the word we more often because Luke is now including himself in the narrative. Just threw that in there. Now, how did the Holy Spirit forbid them or not permit them to continue to minister in Asia? We're not told. All we know is that the Lord spoke to them 
very explicitly and said, I am forbidding you, I am not permitting you. And the beautiful thing is, is that they followed the Lord's direction. And they didn't go through the doors that the Lord was closing. That is a very wise principle to follow the Lord. Where God and where God opens doors, don't try to close them. Just follow the doors as the Lord opens them for you. Now, how did the Lord speak? I have no idea. Were they having a cappuccino in downtown Troas or somewhere? Hey, Paul, don't want you to go there. Check. I don't know how the Lord spoke to them. It doesn't say. All we know is that they knew that the Lord spoke to them. Now, interestingly, their motivations were good. Their message was sound. Their mission lined up with the Lord Jesus' instructions. But God had other plans and other places that he wanted them to go. That doesn't mean when God closes the door that you can't do anything or that he doesn't want you to do anything. It means God says, I want you to do something else, someplace else, and I'll let you know when the time is right. So closed doors does not mean that you are disqualified for ministry. Pastor David Gusick tells of some of the great missionaries and how their directions changed. David Livingstone, he wanted to go to China, but he ended up in Africa. William Carey wanted to go to Polynesia, but God sent him to India. Uh, Adrian Judson went to India, but God guided him to Burma. And God will guide us along the way to just the right place, because he's into that. He's more interested in getting the message of the gospel out to the people that he wants to hear than you and I could ever possibly imagine. And the beautiful thing is, is this is one of the great turning points in church history, because this is when the gospel crossed over from the Middle East across the Mediterranean Sea and got into mainland Europe in northern Greece. And from there, the gospel spread. So, what are the abiding lessons that we see in all of this? First, I believe that everyone in this narrative succeeded for Jesus. Barnabas, Paul, Silas, John, Mark, everybody. They were all succeeding in ministry because they followed the Lord. Silas was an effective partner in Christian ministry. Timothy was a good soldier for Christ. Two of Paul's letters were addressed to him, and six of Paul's letters include Timothy in the salutation. Timothy served valiantly, heroically in Ephesus during days of strife. He went with Paul on the visit to Jerusalem. Timothy was even with him in prison. He was his son. He was his comrade in battle. We know that John Mark got back on track under Barnabas' loving care. He was a great help to Peter, according to 1 Peter 5.13. And at the sunset of his life, Paul wrote and said, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in the ministry. John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, the gospel that presents Christ as the perfect servant. 
Something wonderful had happened in this tender man who had so miserably failed in service, and now he was restored in his relationship to the Apostle Paul, and he was a great servant in the early church. There was healing between Paul and Barnabas as well. If we look at 1 Corinthians 9, 6, it suggests there was. God can use unhappy, perplexing failures to bring fresh purpose and direction to our lives. He can restore the years the locusts have eaten with abundance. And even if we have made mistakes and we're at fault, God can even use these for greater blessings in our life. God will lead us according to his own perfect plan in his own perfect time so that our lives and our ministries will be useful and fruitful for his glory. Please do not limit God by your present or prior experience. God can use it all. He will use it all. The most important thing right now for us to check if you're going through such a time is your attitude. Attitudes determine altitudes. God will, God can direct our lives no matter what what is happening right now. Sometimes we expect to go north and he directs us west or south. And you know what's really interesting? Paul, or God gave Paul this friendship with Timothy and this incredible new opportunity, this vision at the end instead of at the beginning. Isn't that interesting? When he's having this disagreement with Barnabas, God didn't say, or God didn't say to Paul, okay, I'm going to give you a vision of what's happening here. I'm going to add a terrific young disciple into your life, and I'm going to send you to Europe. None of that happened. It happened all after the fact when Paul just trusted the Lord. Timothy was added, and this vision was given, which just comes back to God mysteriously directs our steps at such a level that we could not even discern. We only simply need to continue to have a trusting yielded heart to his carrying hands. And as G. Campbell Morgan said, it's better to go to Troas with God than anywhere else without him. Amen? Well, let's pray together. Worship team, if you'd join me. Worship guys, two of you. Lord, thank you so much for your word and the simple encouragement that you work, Lord, in such beautiful and wonderful ways that just help us to trust you, Lord God, when we don't know whether we're going south, north, east, or west. But, Lord, you are directing, Lord, the affairs of each and every one of us. And I pray, Lord, for encouragement today. I pray for the encouragement, Lord, for the, for the person today that the chapter of their life is one they would rather not have written. It's not easy. It's not fun. I pray that these words would encourage them that, Lord, 
you have not left them or forsaken them. May, Lord, they just dig deep, put their roots, Lord God, in your word, in your promises. And may you encourage them in their heartache. And, Lord, for us who uh, are just uh, enjoying your presence, Lord, it is only confirmation of how good and how wonderful your plans are for our life. So we commit ourselves to your grace today, Lord, and we thank you for your vision, for your providential care, and we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people,